Thanks for joining us here at Thrive Church. We're a church passionate about moving people towards Jesus. For more information, go to our website, www.thrivechurch.co.za. Amen. Well, if you're joining us this morning for the first time, or maybe you haven't been in church for a couple of weeks, we just last, we kicked off a brand new series. It's called Bend, Don't Break. It's a series about how it is that we can build resilience into our lives. You know that I used the analogy last week of bamboo. Bamboo, when it faces strong winds, it can bend, but it doesn't snap, it doesn't break. In wintertime in Japan, when the snow falls really heavily on the bamboo, the bamboo bends down under the weight of the snow, but guess what? Spring comes and the snow melts and the bamboo bends back to where it was. It's a series on how we can build resilience in our lives. When the pressure of life and when the headwinds of life come our way, we become people who are able to bend with it and go with it, but we don't break, we don't snap. Some of you might remember last week I had spaghetti pieces. And uh, I said that uh, spaghetti, the minute you start to bend it, just bend it ever so slightly, it snaps. But the minute you cook it, you add heat and you add water, it cooks and then it becomes resilient. It bends and it doesn't break. And the heat we spoke about last week, the heat of community in our lives, staying close together. Life groups start up this Wednesday. Don't leave today if you're not part of a life group without having signed up for a life group. It'll change your life. You know, that'll be the community that'll hold you when the headwinds come. That'll be the community that'll be part of your life when tough stuff comes in our, in our way. Hey. And then we spoke about the moisture last week being the washing of God's word, that God's word builds resilience into our lives. It's the second ingredient that we need in order to become people who bend and don't break. What does that mean? It means that we go to his word first when tough stuff happens. It means that we wash ourselves in the water of God's word. We don't try and figure it out ourselves. We go to his word and understand what his word has to say to us. So that was last week. So we're in a series called Bend, Don't Break. And because this is so important, and this is where we'll be for the next couple of weeks, um, I want to give us a definition of resilience, to just to make sure that we all understand what we're talking about when we, when we talk about resilience. It refers to the human capacity to deal with and overcome the adversities of life. The human capacity to deal with and overcome the adversities of life. The title of the message this morning is called Learning to Live Differently. Learning to live differently. Learning to live differently to everybody else in our culture so that we can live lives that bend and don't break. Let's dive into the text this morning. I want to read to you from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet. He prophesied about seven to 800 years before Christ was born. And he prophesied, he spoke into, he gave the words of God into the nation of Israel. And uh, the job of the prophet was to bring correction. It was to bring direction. It was to bring hope. And it was to kind of realign the nation back to true north. Isaiah chapter eight Verses 11 to 17, I really felt like God spoke to me this past Monday morning so clearly from this. I felt so challenged and so convicted by this text. I hope that it encourages you and strengthens you this morning. It's a call to trust the Lord. The Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. Could preach on that for a long time today. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do. In other words, don't call everything negative like they do. Anybody live in a country where we call a lot of stuff negative, don't we? 
and don't live in dread of what frightens them. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He is the one you should fear. He is the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. But to Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that makes people stumble. The context of this next few verses is that Israel had gone looking for military help from a pagan nation, from a nation that didn't honor God called Assyria, from the Assyrians. They'd gone looking for their help elsewhere. And God rebukes them here and corrects them. He says, a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he'll be a trap and a snare. Many will stumble and fall, never to rise again. They'll be snared and captured. Preserve the teaching of God. Entrust his instructions to those who follow me. I will wait for the Lord who has turned away from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my hope in him. Let's unpack this for a few minutes this morning, starting with verse 11. Verse 11 says that the Lord has given me a strong warning not to think like everyone else does. He said, don't call everything a conspiracy like they do and don't live in dread of what frightens them. There's a threefold warning or instruction or caution that Isaiah gives to the people. He says, guys, I want you to take heed. Don't think like the herd mentality thinks. Don't think like everybody else in the culture and society thinks. Don't think like everybody else on social media thinks. Because if you do, it'll lead to you calling everything negative. It'll, it'll lead to a negative speech pattern in your life. It'll lead to negativity out of your mouth, which will in turn lead to you living in dread and living in fear. It strikes me that there's a build to this. There's a sequence to what Isaiah is saying here. He says, when we think like everyone, then we begin to speak negatively like everyone. Then we begin to live in fear and dread like everyone. I think it would be fair to say that there are higher levels of anxiety in our 21st century urban environment than there have ever been before. People live in a constant state of anxiety and of dread and of despair and of fear. Isaiah is helping us here by giving us a sequence to how this happens. He says, when you start to think like the rest of them, you start to speak like the rest of them negatively, and you start to live in fear and dread like the rest of them. It happens sequentially. There's an order to it. There's a sequence to it. Are you guys hanging with me this morning? I thought about this and I thought, I think that's the default setting for us. It is for me. It's much easier for me to think like what are all the stuff that I'm hearing about. Then I begin to speak like everybody speaks about. And then I begin to live like everybody lives about. Can I get some amens out there? Thinking, speaking, living. They are all interrelated and they're sequential. If you want to not live in fear or dread, 
we can trace it back to a firm decision not to think like they think. I wondered to myself, I wonder where this comes from. Like, where does our negative thinking, where does the thinking of culture come from? I wanna to propose to you it comes from three places. It comes firstly from the media, secondly from social media, and thirdly, it comes from the braai. <laughs> you know the meeting around the braai? You know where the South African male solves his problems? Around the braai. Because if a steak is cooked perfectly, every problem dissolves for a few minutes. Life is good when the meat's cooked well. But you know the water cooler talk? You know the, the corridor talk? You know the, the talk amongst friends? I was sitting in a coffee shop the other day and I was trying to prepare um, a few weeks back and I couldn't prepare because the, the table next to me, yes, these ladies, these puppies were yucking and yucking and yucking and yucking. And, they, and all that came out of their mouth, all that they spoke about was their negative thinking. It started with the world, then it came to South Africa, then it came to Kuraleri, then it came to their husbands, then it came to their kids. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about when I talk about the bride. You know, when we get together and we just, you know, we, we on and on and on on and on and on and on and on. Starts with the media though. You know, the media, uh, they are, they are, it's important for us to realize that what makes news is not necessarily only newsworthy stuff. What makes news is what the media outlets decide makes news. Now, I want you to be aware of the fact that there are four different types of media bias that we've got to be thoughtful about in our world. There are four different types of media bias. Firstly, there's advertising bias. Right? Where stories are selected or slanted or angled to please advertisers. Did you know that every media organization in our world and indeed in our country has major advertisers that put lots of money behind it? Guess what? Those guys get a say. They decide at boardroom level through the appointment of editors what gets newsworthy and what's not. We are not just receiving the news we're receiving the news that somebody wants us to know. Are you with me now? Secondly, there's corporate bias. Not only is it the advertisers, but it's the owners of the media companies that decide what we get to see and what we get to hear about and what we get to have our minds filled with. It's not only the advertising people, it's whoever owns that particular business. Thirdly, we get what we call mainstream bias. A tendency to report what everybody else is reporting just so that you're not the only media outlet who didn't report that story. It's like the herd mentality. Are they reporting it? We better, otherwise we're not seen to not be as good a news agent. Are you with me this morning? And lastly, sensationalism. So this is a bias in favor of the exceptional over the ordinary, giving the impression that something's more important than that. For example, have you ever noticed how a, an airplane crash gets reported on with much, much more detail and sensationalism than a car crash. Now, did you know that more people die every year in car crashes than they do from airplane flights? But an airplane flight is much more sensational. It makes bigger news. So it gets reported on. Are you with me? Now, let me show you a slide which will show you how biased different media outlets are. I picked an American one so I don't upset any South Africans here. Maybe you like E! News and if I went to E! News it would upset you this morning. So we've just 
gone to America where we can look at CNN, MSNBC, and Fox. Right, hang with me here. Let's start with CNN on the left-hand side. You'll see two bar graphs there, uh, the pink and green. Let's look at Obama. Obama is, well, this was in 2012, right? So Obama's a Democratic uh, politician. He's a Democrat. He uh, represents the Democratic Party. More liberal, left-leaning uh, slant. Mitt Romney is a Republican candidate. More conservative, more, slightly more right-wing scenario. CNN is a Democrat-leaning news organization. You with me? You're going to see now how CNN favors Obama because he's a Democrat. So the green bar tells us that 18% of the stories were those with a positive tone on Obama. They reported on Obama positively. 21% of the stories were on Obama with a negative tone. You see the pink section with a negative tone. You with me so far? Romney, now remember, CNN, Democrat-led or, or leaning organization, 11% of the stories on Romney were with a positive tone. Only 11%. Why? Because he's a Republican. He's of the opposite party. So he only gets 11% positive. Whereas negative, 36% of the stories were like negative. Are you hanging with me? So what CNN is doing is showing you more positive about their candidates and less negative, and uh, more negative on the opposition and more positive, uh, more, more negative on the opposition and less positive. You with me? Now let's cruise across to the right-hand side of that bar graph. Let's look at Fox. You see the section entitled Fox at the bottom? Fox is Republican, the opposite of CNN. On the other side of the political spectrum, Fox is more right-wing. It's more Republican-focused. Obama, who's the Democrat, they don't like him. They only give him 6% of stories with a positive tone. Look how much negative, 46% of their stories are filled with negative stuff about Obama. Romney, on the other hand, who could barely catch a break on CNN, all of a sudden Romney's rocking now. He's got 28% of positive stuff and only 12% negative. Guys, it's the same people. They're doing they're at the same event, fundraisers, all of this sort of stuff. But the difference is the bias of the particular news organization that they represent, or that, they, that they're being reported by. Does that make sense? So we've got media, we've got social media. Let me show you a slide about social media. People were asked, hey, do you think social media has a positive or negative effect? 46% of people said ultimately they feel like social media is negative in their life, yet we continue on it. Why, because we've got FOMO. What's FOMO? Fear of missing out. But overall, it's having negative effects on us and it's having negative effects on your kids. I wanna to suggest to you that if you have kids who are younger than like 16 years of age and they're on social media, you're asking for trouble. You are asking for trouble, you're asking for anxiety to come knocking at their door. Winston Churchill said there's no such thing as public opinion there's only published opinion. He said that before social media was even a thing, right? Interesting, isn't it? So what I'm saying to us is our thoughts, remember Isaiah, the first thing he does is he says, hey guys, don't think like everybody else thinks. 
Well, what is it that makes us think like everybody else thinks? It's the media and social media. Are you with me? And what that does is it begins to put a pattern of thinking into our heads. It begins to put that kind of thinking into our brains. And what happens? We begin to speak negatively, and then we begin to live anxiously. Isaiah says, hey guys, there's three things to be careful of. I want you to be careful of thinking like everyone else. I want you to be careful of speaking negatively. I want you to be careful about living in dread and in fear. But now... God's word is always so incredible because it never leaves us just with a warning. It gives us the tools and what to do in order to flip that situation around. So he says, Isaiah says, oh, there are four things this, this morning that will be an antidote to that kind of living. You know when you get bitten by a snake, you get poison in your arm or your leg or whatever. What's the first thing you need is you need the antidote because the antidote works against the poison. Isaiah says there are four key thoughts that'll work against the poison of the mental um, brainwashing that our culture and our media and our social media does. He says, here's how to counter this. Here's how to live differently. Four thoughts. I hope you take some notes this morning and you'll go to heaven. I'm sure of it. Okay. (laughs) Firstly, verse 13, he says this. Make the Lord of heaven's armies holy in your life. He's the one you should fear He's the one who should make you tremble. He will keep you safe. First thing Isaiah says is make him holy. Now, if you are like me, I read that and I go, what on earth does that mean? How do I make him holy? To make God holy in your life is to regard him as your only hope of provision, blessing, safety, security, and hope. That's how you make God God holy in your life. To be holy means to be set apart from. It means to be distinct from. It means to be set aside from. It means to be kept separate from. What Isaiah is saying is, church, if you want to learn how to think differently, the first thing you've got to do is you've got to not lump God with man. Don't put God in the same bucket. Don't say it's gonna be man and my boss and the politicians and God that'll keep me safe. No, no, he's saying, I want you to bring God out of that mix, put him separately and acknowledge him as your source of hope, your source of provision, your source of safety, your source of security. The only thing you should be relying on for your future is not your boss, not the division that bought your company, not the, your spouse, not your, you know, your kids. Uh, don't think of your kids as the pension fund that's gonna save you. No, God is the one who's your source. That's how you make him holy. You bring him apart from, in other words, what they're saying is God is different to the solutions of man. We, guess what? Our future does not rest as, our future as Christ follows, your future and your family's future does not rest on who's in power. It does not rest on who the opposition party leader is. It does not rest on Julius or Musi or Cyril or any of them. Can I get some amens, please? Thank you. <laughs> I want you to see this in scripture. Come with me to Isaiah chapter 29, verse 23. Watch this. It says, when they see their many children and all the blessings I have given them, they will recognize what? They'll recognize what? The holiness of the Holy One of you. In other words, when they see their many kids, when they see their blessings, when, when you see your blessings, as being from the hand of God, 
That's when you make him holy. That's when you recognize his holiness. That's when you realize, ah, he's the one. I want you to see this again in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. Um, Context to the story, very quickly, before I go to the text. So just give me a minute or two of focus. Israel was supposed to go into Canaan, the promised land. They come out of Egypt, supposed to head in. They don't have the faith to do it. They believe the reports of the spies that went out and checked out the land. 10 of the spies come back and go, guys, there's no ways we can make it. They believe the report. They say, we're not doing it, we're going back. And they enter a period of 40 years of wandering back in the wilderness from where they've just come. It's a terrible story. And in that, they now, I mean, they're pretty bleak as you would be. They, they, they now want water. They go, well, we've got no water. We've got no food. Like, what's going on? So God says to Moses, Moses, you see that rock over there? I want you to speak to that rock. And I, when you speak, water's gonna gush out of it. It's gonna be miraculous. I'll provide for the people, right? Just speak to the rock. So Moses goes, okay, cool. But he gets so angry with the people He's so determined to try and just shake them out of the thing. He actually, he doesn't speak to the rock. He, he hits it, not once, but twice. He strikes the rock with his staff. Then water comes out. But God's angry with Moses because Moses did not allow the holiness of God to be seen. Moses was inadvertently teaching the people, listen, you've got to strike something in your own strength in order for water to come out of a rock. As a result, the people never saw that water can come out of a rock by the mere words of the creating God of this universe. And so now he writes to, and he says, but the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you will not lead them into the land I'm giving them. How do we make God holy in our lives? We set him apart from the solutions of this world and we look to him and him alone as the source of our supply, our provision, our safety, our security, and our future. Can somebody in 10 o'clock say amen? amen? Secondly, we preserve the teaching of God is what Isaiah says. He goes in verse 16. So he said, make God holy. Secondly, preserve the teaching of God. It's a bit of a weird phrase, like preserve the teaching of God. What it's saying is, I want you to remember, I want you to keep fresh. I want you to constantly acknowledge. I want you to go back to, you know you go back to food that's been preserved, right? You, biltong, oh, thank you God for that. You keep going back to biltong, why? Because it's been preserved. It says Psalm 37 verse three to seven. Listen to God's word. Imagine, imagine as people we would go back to this instead of believing News 24 all the time. Watch this. He says, trust in the Lord and do good. Then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. Church, we have the word of God in our lives. What Isaiah is reminding us to do is to fan into flame, to remember that we preserve the word of the God. What do we do? We keep it fresh in our lives. We keep it constant in our lives. We keep going back to it. We don't forget about it. We don't put it in the grocery cupboard and let it go stale. No, we bring it out whenever there's a challenge. We preserve the word of the Lord. We go, I'm gonna believe God's word above what it is that somebody has said out there. Does this make sense to you? Somebody being helped this morning. Thirdly, Isaiah goes, I want you to wait for the Lord. He says in verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who has turned away from the descendants of Jacob. Same prophet, 
who in Isaiah 40 pens maybe his most famous words. He says to Isaiah 40 verse 31, those who wait on the look, and he sees repeating the word wait, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like wings, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, that word wait that Isaiah uses, when he uses that word wait in both scenarios in this book, he uses the Hebrew word cover, which is not a passive waiting. It's a waiting that is expectant. It's a waiting that's active. It's a waiting that's got hope. It's got some faith in it. There's an activity to it. He says, so I'll wait like that. Maybe the best way I can explain it is, it's like a, a woman when she falls pregnant and she hears that there's a life inside of her and she knows that in nine months time, she's gonna give birth to life. What does she do? She waits for the baby, doesn't she? But in the meantime, she doesn't sit back and just lie down and go, oh, we'll check it out in nine months time. No, she's, she's let's get the room ready. Let's get the cot, let's get the clothes going. Let's get the milk and let's get the decorations. And, and she sets the husband to work, right? Why, because she's waiting, because she's said to be what? Expecting a baby. That's the kind of waiting that Isaiah is telling us to do here. So we wait for the Lord. It's interesting that Isaiah, in that, that text, Isaiah 40, 31, he says, those who wait on the Lord, renew their strength, they'll be like eagles, soaring. You know, I did a bit of study on eagles, because I always think at that passage, I'm like, eagles, it's a, uh, it's a pretty theme and it makes for a nice poster, you know, this soaring eagle, but like, what's the deal with it? Eagles, do you know that they need one thing in order to be able to soar like they do? Obviously, they need their wings, right? They've got their wings, but they need a warm undercurrent. They need a warm uh, thermal of air in order to soar. No eagle can soar unless he gets that warm undercurrent underneath him. Guess where? most of the warm undercurrents happen. They happen near mountains because the warm air gets pushed up the slope of the mountain. So guess any guesses where eagles hang out? They hang out at the bases of mountains. And what does the eagle do? He just simply glides, but he can't go any higher until what? Until he gets a warm thermal that comes underneath him. And it lifts underneath his wings and then he begins to soar. There's, for an eagle, there's no soaring unless you're near a mountain. Isn't it ironic that the very thing that provides the warm air, namely the mountain, is the same thing that then becomes an obstacle for him? The very thing that gives the warm air, the thermal, the mountain, now becomes the thing that he has to get over. Maybe if we would look at our obstacles in life a little bit differently to say, well, they're not merely an obstacle. Maybe this is the provision for the thermal. Maybe this is the very, this is, is the very obstacle in my life that's actually gonna lift me up. Are you with me? Maybe it's the very thing that God's gonna use to bring you closer to Him. But an eagle waits. I wrote this, it's not a weakness of the eagle that he is so dependent upon the power of the air. Rather, this dependence is his greatest strength. It's not a weakness of yours that you would wait for God. In fact, the waiting would be the very source of your strength. But we don't wait passively. We don't wait in a lazy boy with a pina colada in one hand and a <laughs> packet of salt and vinegar chips in the other. We wait expectantly. We wait in his word. We wait 
God, today could be the day. We wait with something in our spirit, like a woman with a a baby inside of her. She waits with expectancy for the new life that's about to come. And fourth Isaiah says, put your hope in him. Put your hope in him. Verse 17, I will put my hope in him. Do you know that it's hard to put your hope in that which you don't trust? You know when you go on camps and you do a trust fall? You know, anybody done that? Where you kind of stand at the back of the, you know, like this. And if I had to say, Josh, Josh, catch me now. I'm actually not trusting him at the moment because he's not looking convinced. <laughs> but that's the trust fall, right? If I was to stand here and go, I'm just going to go back now. I'm going to trust, trust, I'm only going to do it if I trust this guy. Would you agree? If he's looking distracted, if he's looking a bit wimpish and weedy in that moment, I'm going to move on to T over here. See if this guy looks a little bit, you know. You only trust, you can only hope in what you trust. Are you with me? I think the reason sometimes we battle to trust God is, or the battle to hope in God is because we battle to trust Him. Battle to trust His character. I read an amazing story about the raid on Entebbe. It's an amazing story of a military operation. Raise your hand now, listen. I want all of you toppies. All of you toppies. Like, I'm in here. I remember watching this movie. So if you're old enough to remember having heard about or watched the raid on Entebbe, shoot your hand up quickly. Come, let's see how. Yes, lots of you. All right. The raid of Entebbe was an incredible military operation. It went down on the 4th of July, 1976. What happened is some Palestinian terrorists hijacked an Air France plane that was traveling from Tel Aviv to Paris. They hijacked the plane and they diverted it down to Entebbe, which was the capital city of Uganda. Uganda at that time was run by a a, a horrible man called Idi Amin. He he was a a dictator, a, a brutal one at that. And he had sided with the Palestinian terrorists. This plane gets diverted and the hijackers landed in Entebbe, and now they sit on the tarmac, and they get the hostages into the airport building, and they say, guys, we want to negotiate with you for some release of our own prisoners. Gradually, they release some of the civilians, but they hold 106 Israeli citizens and crew of the aircraft. They hold them for a week. During that time, the Israeli military starts to go to work. They start planning a sting operation. They start planning a special forces operation. And it went down on the 4th of July, 1976, under the cover of darkness. Uh, The Israeli special forces flew from Tel Aviv to Entebbe, and under the cover of darkness, uh, in a 90-minute operation, it took one whole week to plan, but it went down in 90 minutes. They obliterated every single one of the hostage takers, took out 43 of the Ugandan foot soldiers that were guarding these guys, and destroyed a third of Uganda's air force in 90 minutes. It's an incredible story. Of the 106, 102 got rescued and four passed away, including the older brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, a man called Yonatan Netanyahu. He died in the operation. He's the, Benjamin is the prime minister of Israel at the moment. An incredible operation. But when they interviewed these guys, these, these uh, hostages that were waiting to be rescued, most of them said, we didn't doubt for a minute that we'd be rescued. Why? Because they knew their government. They knew their military. 
They knew the military capacity and capability of their nation. And they knew that Israel doesn't negotiate with terrorists. So they knew that somebody would come for them. It makes a difference when you trust the capability and the capacity of God. When we can trust that, we can put our hope in Him. Let me recap for us this morning. Isaiah writes this amazing passage of scripture and he gives us a warning. He says, guys, three things be careful not to do. Don't think like the herd. Don't call everything negative. And don't, because if you do, you're gonna live in fear and dread. But if you will commit yourself to four things, there are four antidotes to the poison that culture feeds us. He says, if you will make God holy, if you will decide, listen, He is my source. He is my provision. He is the one in whose hands my future rests. Not man and not woman, not anybody on this planet, but Him. If you'll put your trust in Him, put your hope in Him, if you'll preserve the word of God in your life, and if you'll wait for God, but not wait passively, if you'll wait like cover, like actively, expectantly, full of hope, in his word, engaged in his word, on your knees, expectant, preparing like a woman would prepare for her baby, you'll see that you won't think like they think, you won't speak like they speak, and you won't live in dread and fear like the rest of our culture does. If you do that, you'll bend, but you won't break. There'll be a resilience in your life. There'll be a strength in your life. There'll be a steel to your bones that people will wonder, how is it that you're so resilient? You'll bend, but never break. Can somebody say amen? amen. Come, shall we take some time to pray this morning? And uh, Izzy, if just you'll join me, thanks. This morning... Um, we're in church, and church is a place to be real. Um, church is a place where we come with our church smile, but by the end of the service, it's time for us to be a little bit more real. I want to invite anybody here this morning, if you're battling with fear, if you find yourself exactly like what Isaiah was describing, living in dread and fear, I believe God can and wants to do a miraculous work in your heart and in your life this morning. I believe that there's gonna be like a, a blanket of fear that's gonna lift from your life this morning. I honestly believe and trust for that. I believe that's the word that God has given me for us this morning. I'd love the great privilege of praying for you and with you this morning. I'm gonna ask you right now where you are. If you're battling with fear, if you find yourself, hey, one of those guys, it's like you, straight away you go, Isaiah's describing me. I've been living in dread and fear. Come shoot up your hand all across this place. Everybody who finds himself in that boat, you're living like that. Raise your hand up nice and high so I can see who you are. Lots, lots of us, lots of us, lots of us, lots of us. Come, this is a place where you can be real. Don't think like, oh, I've got to have it all together. Oh, it's church. Somebody's going to see me with my hand up. Don't be, don't be that guy. Don't be that woman. Let's be real. Lots and lots and lots of us. Father, thank you this morning that we can, we can put our trust in you. We can put our hope in you. Um, Father, this morning as a church, we are committing every hand raised here, every life represented. We're committing ourselves to remind ourselves to put our faith and our hope in you, not in our business situation, not in a political situation, not in our family situation, not in our marital situation, but we will place our hope firmly in your hands. 
And as we do so, Father, I pray for fear to lift from people's shoulders right now in the name of Jesus. That it would be mysterious, it would be inexplicable, there'd be no rational reason for it, but that right now there'd be a fear that lifts. Those of you who wake up with heart palpitations, those of you who wake up with a knot in your stomach, pray for that to be gone now and to lift from your life in Jesus' name. Because we're people of prayer, we pray first. We're people who believe, God, that you can do the miraculous. Thank you for that. Right now where you are, I'm gonna ask you to pray yourself. You don't need me to pray for you. You can pray for yourself. Just give God thanks. Give it to Him. Or float it to Him. Say, Father, thank you that you would take this from me now. Thank you that I'll not wake up tomorrow with that spirit of heaviness, spirit of fear, spirit of anxiety. Thank you that you do something amazing in this moment, God. Just because of the simple faith of every single one of us who believe that you can do something. God, we always wanna be people who are beyond rational, beyond logic, people who believe in you to do something supernatural, above the natural, out of the ordinary, something extraordinary in our lives. Trusting you for that. And while we're in this time of prayer, thank you, you can put your hands down. While we're in this moment of prayer, if you want to accept Jesus into your life, if you want to open your life to Jesus and say yes to Him and invite Him into your life, the only way you can live without fear is if you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. The moment you say yes to Jesus, you invite Him in, He comes in and He takes residence in your life. If that's you this morning and you want to say yes to Him and invite Him into your life, it will be my, my great privilege to pray for you. I'm going to ask you, just on the count of three, just so that everybody knows when the moment is to respond, I'm going to ask you to slip up your hand and I'm going to include you in my prayer. Ready? One, two, three. Hands up all across this place if that's you. Yes, God bless you. God bless you at the back. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to say thank you if I see your hands. So raise it nice and high for me so I can see who it is that I, I'm praying for. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's awesome. Father, we're so grateful and so thankful for your goodness in our lives. Thank you for every hand, every person, every life that's responded to you to invite you into their lives, Jesus. This morning, we want to come to you and say thank you for your grace. Thank you that you came to earth, died a perfect, uh, sin-free life. You, you died for us in our place to cleanse us of our sin. This morning, we want to commit ourselves to repentance, to saying sorry for where we've led ourselves astray, where we've gone on paths that have not been good, where we've gone our own way, where we've been disobedient, where we've engaged in patterns of destructive behavior. This morning we wanna ask for your forgiveness. We wanna say thank you that you do give us a fresh start. Thank you that you give us a clean slate. Thank you that you write a new future for our lives. Thank you that you are good and merciful and kind and loving. Thank you that your hands are always open for any son and daughter who wants to come 
to your throne. Thank you that we have access to you, God, through Jesus Christ. And Holy Spirit, we pray now that you would come, that you would begin to live in our lives, that you would begin to take up residence in our lives as we hand over control of our lives to you, Jesus, that your spirit would begin to lead us and guide us, that it would begin to change our thinking, change our hearts, change our minds on things, that we'd begin to start to look like you, Jesus we commit our lives to you. Those of you who've responded this morning, I just feel so strongly that whether you responded to the first prayer around fear or whether you responded to the second prayer now about about, uh, inviting Christ into your life, I feel so strongly to encourage you, the very next thing you need to do is get baptized. There's a baptism class happening next week, so don't miss church. Make sure you're here and able to connect into that baptism class. That's a great next step for you to take. I believe God's gonna do amazing things in your life as you commit to being baptized. Don't worry about whether you've got it all together. Don't pray about something Jesus told you to do. He said, the very moment you make a decision, get baptized. Baptism is not a sign that your life has come right. It's a sign that you've said yes to Christ. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded live at Thrive Church. We hope that it inspired you to move towards Jesus.